To me, it doesn't get any better than a back-to-back set of games on the weekend in the Stanley Cup playoffs, and that's exactly what we have. Welcome to the VGK Daily Podcast. Darren Millard along with radio play-by-play voice Dan Duva. Voice and person, not just a voice. You're, you're, you're more than just a voice, Dan. I'm not a disembodied play-by-play yeah. announcer. I, I should I should really clarify that uh, that you're the whole package. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Good to be with you, Darren. Including uh, somebody that uh, that really is responsible for getting this daily podcast uh, to air to the people and uh, covering up for all my blunders. And uh, so thank you for that. You've been uh, amazing. Fun uh, this whole process. That's how I look at it. 31 episodes. Wow. That you've got to air. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and Golden Knights fans are hoping for many, many more. So what do you uh, think about back-to-back games in the Stanley Cup playoffs? Uh, first and foremost, this is very unusual. In the Stanley Cup playoffs, for sure it is. And the Golden Knights, through a couple of postseasons in, in normal times, have not endured that. However, in the minor leagues, where playing three games in three days is almost common, they've cut back on it. But also in the playoffs, and having called the Calder Cup Finals a couple of times, they always play back-to-back in the postseason, and they're accustomed to that. So it's no big deal. And many of these players on the Golden Knights and on the Chicago Blackhawks, among other teams, have come up through the minors, whether it was in junior, in college, or in, in the ECHL, the American League. These guys have played back-to-back. It's more interesting for the veteran guys, the ones who are older, who might need the recovery time, who are further removed from their time in the minors or amateur hockey. So I'm more curious to see how it affects those guys. You know, it's uh, you bring that up. Uh, so in looking at the Chicago Blackhawks, I think, boy, this could really work to uh, the Golden Knights' advantage because they lean on their star players. Uh, Chicago does, and Vegas is so deep. On the other hand, Chicago is what the second youngest team left in the in the Stanley Cup playoffs, so that might work in their advantage. So I don't know what it might just be a wash. Could be, it could be. And when you talk about the veteran players of Chicago, and obviously Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves, and on the blue line and Duncan Keith and, and a few others, but more of those names are unfamiliar. Had you been in a a time capsule for the last five years. (laughs) But hearing from some folks around the Blackhawks, you're hearing, and now we're seeing Kirby Doc. We're hearing about Dominic Kubalik. Uh, These these guys who are rookies who are going to be part of the Blackhawks for a long time. And even someone like Adam Boquist, who was scratched in game two, maybe an opportunity, Jeremy Colleton, to say, hey, Adam, watch some of the things that you're doing well or not doing well. I think of the one goal that the Knights scored, Paul Stastny had been tied up with Boquist at the front of the net. That has to be a teaching moment. Yeah. In other words, there there are those teachable moments for these young players, and it's just in contrast to the 130-some games in the playoffs from the Taves and the Canes and the Seabrooks. Well, not Seabrook, he's not in, but Duncan Keith uh, and even Corey Crawford. So I, I'm... I wonder how that plays out for them. Can the the old guys, quote-unquote old guys, carry the load? Can the young guys learn those lessons? It's almost like when we see those guys come out of the junior ranks late in the season. Like I think of like Chris Kreider coming out of college yep. with the Rangers for that playoff run. Can those guys figure it out quickly enough to jump from one level to the other? It's a little bit similar now just because there's been such a break between the regular season and the playoffs for those young guys. Game three. Vegas is up 2-0, face-off at 5 o'clock Pacific time this afternoon. This is your prototypical swing game. 
where you, you put the hammer down or it becomes a bit of a series. You think about how close the Hawks were to pulling out a victory in Game 2 on Thursday. Bounce here, um, a slip there, Golden Knights in a position that they had not been in in this series where they, you know, they'd, they'd built a lead of, of two goals. It was 2-1 to one. in Game 1. They pulled away in the third period for a 4-1 to one victory. It was a Chicago club that took a big stride going into Game 2. And I wonder, can they take another big stride? Or is what we saw in Game 2 as good as they can be? Whereas the Golden Knights, while finding their game in the third period on a regular basis, they seem to be up and down, sometimes good, sometimes okay, That's sometimes death not taxes great. taxes and Vegas finding their game in the third period. Yeah, and, and so if that is going to continue, will the Knights continue to grow at a pace that exceeds the strides the Blackhawks are taking. It is the important game three, and it's the start of back-to-back. Here is Nick Waugh, followed by Zach Whitecloud and head coach Pete DeBoer. Yeah, it's going to be uh, important for sure, game three. I think uh, um, they're probably going to come up hard uh, for that game. They don't want to be down 3 nothing, and um, same for us. I think it's going to be a, a big game, and uh, um, of course, the game back-to-back is going to come pretty quickly, so um, but Game three is going to be important, and we'll be uh, we'll be ready for that. No, I don't think anything changes. You still prepare the same way, and um, you know at the end of the day, it's the same for both teams, right? So um, you just do the best you can to um, you know get some sleep after the game, and and uh, go over things from the game before, and and uh, you know once that game ends, turn your focus to the next one, and um, you know just get ready for the next one. So there's uh, not a whole lot that changes, but. Um, just do your job and, and uh, be responsible and get yourself ready for the next one. You know, it, it really taxes your roster and and uh, and uh, tests your depth um, because, you know, playoff hockey, you're dealing with a lot of bumps and bruises and night-to-night uh, decisions on guys. So, um, but uh, I think anybody that's, you know, built for a deep run has that type of depth. And and uh, I think it's a, it's a great test of, of the best team's depth uh, and being able to survive that and, and go back at it. And if you ask the guys that are around here, they want to play. They want to play games and, and uh, they don't want to sit around the bubble. They want to they wanna play and get at it. Two games in less than 24 hours, you know, obviously uh, that's pretty rare even during the regular season. But uh, I think it's something our guys are embracing. I, again, I, I said, you know, they, they want to play games. They're, they're tired of practicing. We, we had training camp. Uh, you know, they're ready to get at it and, uh, and play. So I, I think uh, everyone's excited about, uh, about that. I'm with you. I, I don't know whether Chicago has more to give because they were really good in game two on Thursday. I'm with you. And Jeremy Colladin didn't do all that much to change things. The lines were basically the same. The only change was... Lucas Carlson going in on defense to replace Boquist. Possibly that that swap happens again. Both very young defensemen. Calvin DeHaan had been injured against the Golden Knights back in December. He's healthy, so that helps their blue line. No Seabrook, as I mentioned a few moments ago. There really aren't too many other options up front. Maybe you jumble the lines. Do you put Kane and Taves together? A little bit more, right? There, You know, it seems to me that that if you're the Blackhawks, there's, despite losing, you have a greater belief in your competence against the Knights because Vegas is such a different team than the Oilers. They beat the Oilers. The Oilers are a good team, but Vegas is so different. 
maybe it's taken the Hawks a game or two to make that adjustment to play as well against Vegas. A couple of players that I want to key on going into game three. Uh, one is Shea Theodore, and Pete DeBoer talked about uh, how they are leaning on Theodore's game along with the defensive partner Alec Martinez more and more on their all-around game, both uh, offensively and lining them up against the other team's top players, which in this case is Patrick Kane. I, I've talked uh, since I got here about Theo's uh underrated defensive game he's got such great feet and gap uh, and a lot of times with uh, with great players like Kane uh, the way they create offense is is with time and space off the rush and uh, your gap is a, is a huge piece of defending that in your feet so those two guys have great feet great gap great awareness um, you know and they both move pucks well enough under pressure that uh, they're not overwhelmed uh, by those guys coming at them. Um, so, uh, you know, really an easy decision. At the same time, you know, we're not a hard match team where, you know, we're racing to pull guys off the ice. If if some of our other defensive pairs get out there against those guys, they, you know, we're comfortable. They can get the job done. Boy, what a compliment, eh? Talking about uh, Theodore being able to play against Hall of Famers like that. So impressive. And Alec Martinez sings his praises like everybody else. And you got to believe Martinez because he's had so many talented partners over the years and he gets the best seat in the house for Shea Theodore. And when we chatted for the pregame show on Thursday, Martinez talked about Theodore's smooth skating. So when they're coming out of the D zone... Martinez looks up and sees Theodore so far up ahead. He's like with the forwards. <laughs> they were both terrific. You're looking at uh, two of the top guys in terms of minutes, the plus minus numbers. And even though Martinez doesn't have the flash of Theodore, he doesn't quite dazzle. Just a perfect compliment. And no disrespect to the other guys who played with Theodore in the past. But Martinez just has a higher level than, say, Nick Holden, who had been Theodore's partner prior to the acquisition of Martinez. And we know Alex's propensity for the timely score uh, it was that one game, it was a few games ago in the round robin, where every Golden Knights defenseman had a point except for Martinez. But I might have told you he was the best of those six defensemen. Just everything that you could hope for. And I think that the rock-solid reliability of Martinez allows Shea Theodore to be more comfortable and more confident in allowing his skills to, fro to flow freely. He's like a fence builder out there, Martinez. He's hitting so many posts in, 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 in this postseason. But uh, yeah. he, I also like what Pete uh, just uh, threw in at the end of that comment uh, about Shea and, and Alec. Is he doesn't have to chase matchups because he, Schmidt and McNabb are also very good. Nobody wants to match up with any of these Golden Knights D pairs. Listen, White Cloud uh, and Holden is the third pair, but... Um, they uh, again, same thing. They're they're not flashy. They're they're not going to do things that often make the highlight reel. But they've been reliable. They've done the small things to retrieve pucks and get out of the zone quickly. The Knights uh, at times have been a little shaky on breakouts, but it hasn't been the White Cloud and Holden pairing. You know, McNabb and Schmidt has been the go-to pair for three years now. They've been together for most of that time. So we're used to seeing them and you almost take for granted what they do. Schmidt's speed, McNabb's propensity for blocking shots and hitting. You've got, I think, three defensive pairs that make for a lot of frustration 
no matter who the opponent. And they have to be good because Patrick Kane, in the words of Pete DeBoer, took it to another level in Game 2 on Thursday night. But so has Riley Smith in this 2020 playoffs. He was on his way to a career year, just uh, unbelievable goal-scoring touch uh, uh, during the regular season. He's carried that over uh, into this 2020 playoff. And DeBoer has been gushing about Smith uh, and saying he knew he was good, but just uh, that was from standing on the other bench. Now watching him firsthand, his uh, thought process about Riley Smith's game has gone up two or three notches. You would see the goals and the individual skill uh, as an opposing coach, but boy, when you stand there and, and you see the detail in his game and, and how coachable he is and how you know he executes uh, you know two you know flawlessly all the little things that you're talking about in your game plan and and really leads away in that department for other guys he's such a smart hockey player um you know he he's one of the best for me defensive forwards in the league way he kills penalties his ability to to be on the right side of the puck and battles all the time um so he's he's just a, a fantastic 200 foot hockey player it's hard to impress coaches we know that. And when they're, when they're speaking so freely about your game, complimenting it, that is the true sign that you've got the coach's attention. Riley had 27 goals, 27 assists in the regular season. He's on a similar pace to the playoffs with three more goals, including the clutch one. I'm also amazed, not entirely surprised, but amazed that only five players have more points in the postseason than Riley Smith since the Golden Knights came into existence. We're talking the big guns on the Bruins and the Capitals, right? Remember, the Knights got knocked out of the first round right. last year. Yeah. So you've got a full postseason, four rounds, Smith in 2018, only one round, seven games to work with in 2019, and we're just a handful of games here into the 2020 postseason. But to put him in that stratosphere, again, no disrespect, but you look at that list of names, which of these guys does not belong? And Riley Smith is the one. And Paul Stastny saying just... Riley Smith is an under-the-radar guy. And then he paused. He said, for others, not for us. We know how good he is. <laughs> and I also asked but he's people, a, Riley Smith's a low-key guy, yeah, too, well, right? exactly right. You, you wouldn't think of him as a, as a pom-pom waiver. He's not like I me. Mean, Jonathan Marshall so eats up all the oxygen on that line, right? <laughs> but Riley has worn an A on his sweater from the beginning, all the way back in October of 2017. Might that be partly because Gerard Gallant knew him in Florida and knew already knew of his leadership qualities? I bet. But there were so many guys with leadership history in year one. So Riley stood out in that way. And in the pregame conversation we'll have on the broadcast today, uh, 4.30 pregame show on the radio, Darren, I asked Pete DeBoer when we recorded the interview, not only about Riley Smith as a player, but also as a personality. And you'll hear Pete in his own words on the pregame show later today talking about the leadership qualities. And while he might not show all of his personality in a press availability, on the bench, you hear and you feel Riley Smith as a leader. What do you think happens as we look to game three in the faceoff this afternoon if Pacioretty or Tomas Nosek don't go? Well, Patrick Brown was on the ice for warmups in game two, prior to game two. John Merrill has been the defenseman taking warm-ups. 
In other words, you don't have to limit the players skating during warmups to the game lineup. Other guys can be out there for whatever reason. And that leads me to believe that if there were an injury during warmups, you'd put in the guy who just took warmups. God forbid somebody, you know, sprains an ankle or something right. while they're skating around during warmups. So could it be Patrick Brown that goes in if 67 and 92 are unavailable? I can't imagine that they would put an extra defenseman and go with 7D. We've almost never seen that with Gerard Gallant oh, or Pete DeBoer. The third period in overtime with 11 forwards, they were dynamite. <laughs> True. I, True. I, I'm with you. Yeah. There. yeah. You know, uh, and, it, you know, John Merrill did play a couple of games as a forward mm. this year, but those were in dire circumstances when the Knights didn't have anybody else. They have a whole taxi squad of players to choose from, and it may depend upon you know, which guy, which lefty, righty, third line, second line, fourth line. Like a line centerman so to be able to play in that fourth line. Yeah, you know, and, and I, I talked about this, and, and you and I chatted about it during one of our video streams prior to the resumption of play during training camp, what Tomas Nosek can do. He's not Max Pacioretty. He's not going to score 30 goals in this league, but he has scored some timely playoff goals. Did in this series. Did in game two. He also has been great in the faceoff circle. There was a point in the second period where the Knights were really – having some difficulty and Nosek won a couple of draws against Jonathan Taves who's one of the best and I wonder if you just plug somebody in on the fourth line it's not just so simple you need somebody who can win those critical draws so I think of those things aside from Pacioretty and his offensive propensity there's a lot that goes into who goes in should those two players be unavailable and I'm also torn because I love Nick Waugh with the Carrier and Reeves they, they have been so effective but I also like Nick Waugh playing up in the lineup a little bit in that third line Reeves and Carrier seem to be doing the same thing night in and night yeah. out whether it was Belmar the last couple of years no sick Watt, you've seen Cousins there too. It seems that that's going to be pretty reliable and consistent. However, when Nick Waugh was moved from the third line to the fourth line, game one of this series, the third line did not look the same. Is Nick Waugh the linchpin here? Is he might he be the, the fixer. You know, Nick Waugh with Tuck and Cousins, that just worked in mm. a way that it did not work when Stevenson was between Tuck and Cousins. And Pete DeBoer admitted, just because it looks good on paper, a line combination looks good on paper, like, say, Cousins, Stevenson, and Tuck, that doesn't mean it translates to actual gameplay. We know Stevenson can do so many great things and play up or down in the lineup, but maybe it's not quite the right fit for him as the third-line center. Again, we don't know. You might not be able to have the luxury of that decision. You might be forced into putting somebody in because of injury, but time will tell. Game three this afternoon, 4.30 is the pregame show. Ryan Wallace will have that on the Golden Knights radio network. And then at 5 o'clock, Dan and Gary Lawless have the call on the radio side of things. Uh, NBC game today, uh, so it goes national, not on AT&T. We'll be back on the TV side uh, tomorrow for the second half of this back-to-back. Uh, so you have to go get ready for the call. Uh, but before you do that, you have to put this together. Okay. And then you have to publish it. As long as I can have a sip of my iced coffee. Or please, please. Uh, Dan, uh, again, uh, thanks for everything. And uh, really appreciate this, your time today on the VGK Daily. Always a pleasure, Darren. Thank you. VGK Daily, episode 31, as the Golden Knights search for a 3-0 series lead in round one of the Stanley Cup playoffs. We'll recap and uh, look ahead. It'll be the uh, post-game, pre-game on uh, Sunday's edition of the VGK Daily. Stay safe.